verse 1 this morning. Now, the primary thought in this passage runs from verse 1 through verse 10 in chapter 5, and then there's a significant break. We have verses 1 through 4, which is one theme, and then we have verses 5 through 10, which is the answer or the counter to that as well. And since we're beginning a new chapter this morning, this is our 30th message as we begin chapter 5. I think we're humming right along, according to my pace, but uh, uh, we... uh, we uh, do not want to be one of those that's a mile wide and an inch deep. We were, we probably would never be accused of that. We're probably just the opposite. And so that's our desire. Our desire is that by the time we finish the book of Hebrews, that you understand what it means well enough to be able to teach it and share it with others. That's our desire. That's what we're aiming for in expository preaching. So since we're beginning a new chapter this morning, we need to give ourselves a little context before we begin this whole new section. And if we had to summarize all that we've learned so far in the previous 29 messages from the book of Hebrews, it would be quite simply this. Christ is better. Christ is better. If you had to summarize it up in three words, that's what you'd say. Christ is better. And from the very beginning, the author of Hebrews has been demonstrating that Christ is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And now he's better than Aaron. And the primary reason he is doing this is because these professing Christians have been tempted to fall away from their profession of Christ and fall back and return to Judaism. And the source of their temptation has been an ever-increasing persecution both from inside their community and from outside their community as well. The Gentiles persecute them because they simply don't like the Jews or the Christians. And so there's a constant persecution that's going on there. But inside their community, the Jews are persecuting them because they don't like the Christians. So they're kind of getting it from both sides here. They're under a lot of pressure to abandon their profession of faith and to return back to Judaism. Now that would include a return to the Old Testament. All the Old Testament rituals, all the Old Testament ceremonies, all the Old Testament feasts and sacrifices, the Old Covenant, and the priests that they had followed before their profession of faith in Christ. Which is why the author of Hebrews has been so adamant all along in these previous four chapters to demonstrate that what they have in Christ is far better than anything that they had previously under the old covenant and the old sacrificial system. And he wants them to see that going back to the old covenant would not bring them closer to God. Matter of fact, just the opposite. It would pull them further away from God. And so as they pulled away from God, they were in greater and greater danger of falling away completely. So to combat combat this, in between the author of Hebrews' exhortations about why Christ is better, he keeps putting in these warning passages. He sprinkles them in right at the right time. He kind of like takes a little detour and it's like, okay, now that you understand that, let me tell you why it's a bad idea for you to do that. And so he gives them a warning along the way. The first one we saw back in chapter 2, you remember what that was? It was, do not neglect your salvation. 
do not let your ship of life pass right on by the harbor of salvation. Don't do it. Don't get so caught up in what you're doing and think that you've got plenty of time and that you'll just anchor some other time because the further you drift away, the harder it is to anchor back. He says, don't let your ship of life drift right on past there. Instead, they should anchor their souls to Christ. That's a theme you'll see in chapter 6, verse 19. Anchor your souls to Christ. Don't drift on by. Well, the temptation was to eliminate the stress of persecution. You can imagine what they're thinking. If I just go back to the way it was, I can, this all would go away. If I just go back and denounce my profession of faith in Christ, I can go back and my community will accept me again. And my kids, my sons can go back to the rabbinical school and my wife, she can, well, she can shop at the market again and, and we can worship together in the temple. All I got to do is just say, I don't believe anymore. And all this goes away. So you can imagine the stress that they were feeling. But the question that the author of Hebrews is going to ask them is, that's true. That's true. You could eliminate all that stress. You could eliminate all that persecution. You could make all of that go away. All you have to do is denounce your faith in Christ. But then he asked them this, but at what price? What price are you willing to do that? Which is why the author of Hebrews gave them their second warning, and that began in chapter 3, verse 7, and ran all the way to verse 13 in chapter 4. And that entire warning was about what? It was about missing God's rest. And so the comparison was made of the Israelites that died in the desert because of their evil, unbelieving hearts, is what the text tells us. And because of their unbelief, They never entered God's rest for their souls. They wandered around in that desert and died. Why? tells us because of their unbelief. And even though God's rest was still available today, in the time that he was speaking there, uh, David, in David's time, it was available to them there. When they were wandering around the desert, it was available in David's time. That's why the author of Hebrews went back to Psalm 95. He's saying, hey, listen, even 700 and some years later, it was available. And then even now in the book of Hebrews, another 1,500 years later, he's saying, it's still available today. All you need to do is surrender your life to Christ. Do not let God's rest. Do not miss it. Incidentally, that rest is still available today until the Lord returns or until you draw your last breath. That rest is still available today. You but need to surrender your life. Which is why the author of Hebrews in verse 14 of chapter 4 told them to hold fast to your confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Hold fast. Don't let go. Don't drift on by. Don't miss this opportunity you have to enter God's rest. Don't presume upon God's grace another day. Don't think you've got another day tomorrow. Don't think you have another breath to take. Because even the breath you just took is merely by the grace of God. So don't don't miss that. Don't miss God's rest. But despite the ground that was being made by some in their acceptance that Jesus was greater in significance than the prophets, greater than the angels, even if they accepted that that Christ was greater than Moses, 
there was some real reluctance to accept the idea that this new covenant with Jesus was better than the old covenant that they had under the law with Moses and Aaron. And you would say, well, why is that? If Jesus is so much more superior as the Son of God than any of the prophets, than any of the angels, than, than even Moses and etc., then why would you struggle with the new covenant he made with you? Why would you think that would be less favorable than the old covenant he made through Moses? And the answer is, and the Jews understood this, and rightly so, incidentally, that no one could come into the presence of God on their own terms. They recognized their inherent sinfulness. They recognized that we don't just get to stroll into God's presence and demand our own terms. That God is holy and perfect and just. And here, here's a spoiler for us. We're not. And so we don't get to stroll into God's presence on our own terms and just say, Lord, you just got to overlook my sin. I'm here to tell you what I need. Or here's how I'm going to be saved, Lord. I've worked it all out, and this really fits my lifestyle. So these are the terms I've determined for my own salvation. God says that kind of thing, that you know what that's called? That's called self-righteousness. And he says that self-righteousness is as filthy rags to me. That you as a created being would think that you could stroll into my presence and then determine which commands you'll keep, which ones you won't what your terms of salvation will be, which things you'll do, which things you won't. He says, those things are repugnant to me, that you would even think that you could do that. Remember we looked last week, remember when, when God called Moses to the mountain? He said, don't even let the animals come near there. Don't even, don't make sure everybody's ceremony and clean. Don't even have them gaze at the mountain when my presence comes there. So the Jews, they understood that God is holy and they were not. They understood that. They recognized their own sinfulness. They knew that they had to have, there was a need to have their sins forgiven by a holy and righteous God. What they did not understand is who was going to be the mediator for them. I can't just come into the presence of God. Who is going to do that for me? That's what Moses, that's what Aaron did under the old covenant. And you're telling me there's a new covenant with Christ. Who's the mediator? Who's that going to be? Later, through God's appointing, the high priest then was the mediator between them and God. But to the Jewish person who was raised in the system their entire life, that's what they were thinking. Their question would be, how could you ever come in to the presence of God without a high priest? Who would administer the sacrifices that would be necessary to atone for my sin? And that's what the priest did under the Old Covenant. He mediated between man and God. But that's why we saw in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4 that we looked at last week, that's why the author says, you don't have just a high priest, incidentally. You have a great high priest. The only one in all of Scripture who's called the great high priest. The one who not only passed through the three partitions of the temple to come into the Holy of Holies, but the one who passed through the heavens to sit permanently at the right hand of the Father in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God. One whose very name signifies both his humanity and his deity, Jesus, Son of God. 
one who was tempted with every weakness and yet never yielded to that sin. This new covenant has a great high priest, and his name is Jesus, the Son of God. And that's what chapters 5 through 10 are all about. They're all about proving that Jesus is the great high priest and that his priesthood is far superior to any other priest that has ever lived or will ever live. Now, as I stated earlier, the entire reason for a high priest was to mediate between man and God. They understood they had to have somebody in between there. They couldn't just come into the presence of God. They understood that they, their need for having someone that God had appointed, someone that had the right qualifications, somebody who had been specifically equipped for the ministry of the high priest to mediate for them, to stand on their behalf and plead and communicate with God. After all, you cannot read through the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy and not realize that God ordained a very specific functionality for these high priests. It's not like they just made it up on a whim. They, God was very specific. Matter of fact, keep your place here in Hebrews and turn to Exodus chapter 28 for just a second. Exodus chapter 28. Everything about these high priests, from the way they were dressed, to what they could eat, to when they could eat it, to what their hearts had to be like, is specifically prescribed by God. Look at Exodus verse 28. Look at the garments that the priests had to wear. Verse 28, verse 1. Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to whom? To me, God says, to me. That's what their functionality is. They are to be priests who represent you to me. He says here, uh, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory, for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priests to whom? To me, he says again. Notice verse 6, jump down there. They shall also make an ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. Verse 9, I'm skipping here through this chapter a little bit. Uh, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. Look at verse 12. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. The priest was to carry upon his shoulders a representation of the people of God. Everything in his garment speaks to him being a representative of the people of God to God. Everything from the breastplate, right? From the breastplate that had, that was, again, close to his chest. All of it, all of it is very specified. God is very specific. Only his specifically ordained priests were allowed to conduct specifically ordained duties 
that bring men into the presence of God. But now, here, the author of Hebrews is telling them that under this new covenant, that Jesus is the great high priest, that there is no longer a need for an earthly high priest to perform these duties. And that Jesus, through his atoning work on the cross, his one-time sacrifice would atone for all the sins of all those who put their faith in him. They now had access to the mercy seat of God at all times. The veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two from top to bottom, demonstrating that they all now had access to the very holy of holies, into the very presence of God. Which is why the author of Hebrews instructed them to come with confidence. Notice in chapter 4, verse 16. Remember, we looked at that last week. Come with confidence or come boldly. Not boldly because of us, not boldly because of what we've done, but boldly and with confidence because what Christ has done. What do you receive there? Not judgment when you come to that seat. What do you receive? Mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. That's what we find there. But you can understand that hundreds of years of that old covenant with the high priest as their mediator was difficult for them to just throw away and walk away and say, okay, I guess now Christ is better. You can imagine how what a difficult transition that was for them. And their inability or their reluctance to understand these very difficult truths will actually set the ground for the next warning, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5. Which is why the author of Hebrews sets out here, beginning in verse 1, to show very specifically how Christ is superior to any earthly high priest. And then in verses 5 through 10, he's going to demonstrate how he fulfills every requirement of an earthly high priest and then some. He's going to say, here's what the requirements were. Here's what Christ did, plus all of this. And that's an important question to them because... They had to have that answered in their mind. Because in their mind, they were thinking this. He doesn't fit any of the qualifications for any priest that we know. Here's what Dr. MacArthur writes. He was part of the wrong tribe. He wasn't born in the right family. Apparently had not spent his life preparing for this. There's no indication that he in any way fit what they thought were qualifications, at least the extraneous ones, right? At least the ones that they could see. So it's important that Jesus... Christ be seen as the one who qualified to be the priest. Now let's just unpack that, what what time we have left here in verse 1. That was all introduction. Okay, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The first qualification for a high priest was that he had to have a shared humanity with those that he represented. In other words, the high priest had to be human. God did not ordain angels to be the high priest. He did not ordain any of the animals to be the high priest or any supernatural being to be our meteor, any deceased souls. None. Had to be somebody like us to represent us. Had to be somebody... Had to be someone who was a partaker of the human nature, or the mind and a body. Angels could not be an effective mediator for man because they didn't partake of human nature. They could help us 
They could help man in his mediation like the angels did with Moses, but they could not be a high priest and be our representative in the Holy of Holies. So from the very inception of the priesthood, God ordained that it would be men who would represent men before God. They had to have shared weaknesses. They had to have shared temptations. They had to have shared sufferings. They had to know what it was like to be persecuted for their faith in God. And this is essential not only for high priests, incidentally, but if we were to bring that forward today, this is an essential quality for pastors as well and for all believers who minister to one another. A shared weakness to know what it's like to battle against temptation, to struggle against sin. It's essential. Two examples come to mind. The first is when I'm mentoring young pastors for the ministry. I don't know how many we've, how many have we had through? Maybe eight or ten? I don't know. Maybe eight or ten that we've mentored now through. There seems to be two very different types of pastor. There's the pastor who loves his study. He loves his books. He loves to prepare lessons and put them together, very well-thought-out sermons. And this type of pastor loves to spend time in their study, really enjoys the learning and the preparation, digging deep into the original languages. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Well, that's the gift they have. Anyway, where they struggle, though, where that type of pastor struggles, though, is in the human interaction, the compassion ministries, the follow-up calls, the visits to the infirmed, the just checking up on people because something doesn't seem quite right. The second type of pastor loves people, loves visitation, loves just hanging out with the saints. If there's a group function anywhere in the vicinity in the body of Christ, count that pastor in. He's the first to arrive, the last to leave every fellowship gathering. Hard to get that pastor out of the lobby before the service starts because they just want to say one more thing to one more person before the service starts. But where that type of pastor struggles is in spending the necessary time in the word to feed the flock. The messages can often be shallow and lack real depth in teaching. And then consequently, when you when the flock runs up against something in their life they just don't have the answers for, they don't know where to turn. They don't know where to find it. They're ill-equipped to find the answers to the trials and setbacks in life that inevitably, inevitably beset us all. And as gracious as all of you are to us as pastors, neither model is correct according to the Word of God. We really have three, three jobs. It's really quite simple. We're to feed and lead and love. That's it. Feed the flock, lead the flock, love the flock. And if we're not doing all three of these at the expense of picking up and putting emphasis on more of the ones that we like to do, and we're not doing all three, then we're not ministering how the Lord intended us to minister to you, to the flock. Now, you all know I'm hard on pastors, but that's because I am one. I know how easily it is for us to lose sight of our ministry. But now let me give you another example of how that shared humanity is important for those who are not pastors. And I'm thinking about the one another ministry. You know what I'm talking about? When you go through and you read through the word of God, look how many times it says, love one another, carry one another's burdens, share with one another, pray for one another, love one another. 
That's our counseling ministry in the body of Christ, isn't it? You know, we're all counselors, right? We all give advice to each other all the time. We're all counselors. It's, it's not a question of whether you're a counselor or not. It's a question of what's your source of counseling. From, where, from which do you draw to counsel others? I'm not talking about formal counseling. I can see some of you going, ooh. I'm talking about when somebody comes to us and says, hey, I'm really struggling with this. I'm really struggling with that. I'm really tempted to do this. The Bible says that we're to bear each other's burdens. We're to come alongside that person. We're to come alongside and help them. We're to pray with them. We're to open up the word of God and encourage them and exhort them and admonish them to come back. Let the Lord lead. So I'm simply talking about the ministry that we give to one another as we come alongside. We pray. We search the scriptures for the biblical way we should be walking in life, the biblical way we should be handling our Issues. And one of the things that makes each believer uniquely qualified to minister to one another is that we have a shared humanity. None of us here, right, can claim that we're not human as far as I know. We all know what it's like to be tempted. We all know what it's like to struggle with our sin. We all know what it's like to be persecuted or to be set aside or to be left alone or to be ostracized because of your faith. And because of that, we can come alongside someone else and comfort them and encourage them in the word. Don't let ever let anyone tell you that you're not equipped to counsel. Because as long as you're a child of God with the indwelling Holy Spirit, you already have one of the most important qualifications of ministering to one another. Your shared humanity is the other. Well, before we move off verse 1 this morning, I want you to notice one more aspect of the shared humanity of the high priest qualifications. Because we spent some additional time here setting up our new chapter, and because we have communion this morning, this is all the further we'll get today. Look at verse 1 again, the second half of that. One of the most important qualifications of the high priest was the ability to do what? Offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, remember, I told you that the key function of a high priest was to mediate between man and God. And the primary way in which this was done under the Old Covenant was through the sacrificial system. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we dug into Leviticus 16, right? We looked at the Day of Atonement. You will recall that the high priest first had to atone for what? His own sins. Amen. That's exactly right. He had to atone for his own sins first before he could ever be a representative for the people of God and come into the Holy of Holies. Sin is the great barrier between man and God. And we're not invited into his presence until that sin is dealt with. And God has ordained that those sins would be dealt with vicariously. What does that mean? That means you, you do something on behalf of another. Like when the priest would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat on behalf of the people of God. That means God has ordained was God ordained was that the high priest would have to atone for his own sins first through the shedding of blood, a blood sacrifice, and then he would be able to enter into the Holy Holies to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the people of God. The scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. These sacrifices for sin were only temporary covers for sin, weren't they? But they look forward to the day when the Lamb of God would once and for all 
take away the sin of the world. Beloved, we're out of time. Yet again this morning, I don't know how that happens, but let me leave you with these thoughts as we prepare our hearts for communion here this morning. The entire purpose for a high priest was to mediate between man and God. Why did we need mediation? Because sin has created a barrier between God and us. God's solution, he would appoint a high priest, a mediator, who would stand in our behalf. Someone who had a shared humanity with us, who knew what it was like to struggle against sin. Someone who knew what it's like to suffer, to face temptation, to persevere through persecution. That high priest who shared in our humanity would represent us before God in his presence in the Holy of Holies. And he would be our representative before God, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat to atone for our sins. But before he could represent us, he had to atone for his own sins before he could ever represent us and enter into the Holy of Holies before God. But all of that was only a shadow of the one who would not need to make atonement for their sin, for his sin. But instead, he would give himself as a sacrifice once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. And that great high priest is now seated at the right hand of the Father in the Holy of Holies, interceding for us. There are some additional qualifications for a high priest. We'll look at those next week, beginning in verse 2. But for now, I want us to pause and reflect upon how Christ, 